0: Now, as we've, uh, as we've covered over, especially the last few lessons in particular, um, Christians and non-Christians have these conflicting value systems that are uh, at, at odds with one another. They're diametrically opposed. And there's probably no, no need to really review exactly uh, how this works or what it looks like other than to simply summarize that it means that we value completely, completely different things than do those who are in Christ. But the question is this, Uh, given that the value systems of Christians and non-Christians are galaxies apart, I mean, just totally opposite, how does someone who holds to the world's value system ever even start that journey toward God's value system? this issue involves uh, honestly it involves some serious mystery um you know when i went and studied apologetics you guys know this you know i went and studied t- i chose apologetics over a regular seminary education um and because part of the appeal for me was that if i just knew how to give somebody this formulaic argument um if i could just let them see the evidence for Christianity for themselves, it seemed to me that following Jesus would be a no-brainer, like it would, it would be automatic, like a knee-jerk reaction. If they just see the proof, boy, they, they, of course they're going to believe. Wow, uh, it, it almost never works that way, sadly. Uh, the flaw in my thinking was based on the fact that I had underestimated The power of a hardened heart. And that's something that we've seen over and over again through the book of Mark. A hardened heart will prevent a person who has been given the most coherent, the most persuasive appeal for following Jesus from taking that step. A hardened heart is often the obstacle that prevents them from taking that step. The power of a hardened heart is maybe most clearly revealed in the words of Abraham, as he speaks to the rich man who died and went to hell in Luke chapter 16. Uh, this rich man, or formerly rich man, uh, was, was begging and pleading with Abraham to send someone to warn his brothers of what awaits them if they don't repent, if they don't turn from their sin and turn toward God. So he's begging Abraham, please send someone to talk to them, to warn them. And Abraham replies by, uh, and he says, if somebody goes uh, to them from the dead, uh, they'll repent, right? Abraham says, you know, there's the law, there's the prophets, they've got those. Those, if anything will convince them, those should be enough to convince them. And so the rich man, formerly rich man, says, no, send somebody from the dead because they will believe somebody coming back from the dead. And listen to what Abraham says. He replies, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Man, that is a hardened heart, where somebody that you know is dead comes back and wants to warn you about hell, and he's saying it's not going to be enough, because a hardened heart is that powerful. Now Jesus Christ did rise from the dead and there is a ton of evidence, both circumstantial and historical, to support that fact. Only someone who is completely hard-hearted, spiritually blind, can look at the evidence for the resurrection and walk away even more firm in their disbelief, not one step closer to surrendering their value system to the Lord. Now we're going to see a picture of this same phenomenon uh, in our lesson here today, in which we'll see Jesus go on trial. Well, that's, that's what we call it. We call it Jesus' trial, but really a trial by definition is, quote, the determination of a person's guilt or innocence by due process of law. That's what a trial is by definition. And that's why in the United States judicial system, for example, we say that a person is presumed Innocent until proven guilty. That's called due process. They have to go through the process in which their guilt or their innocence is determined or or uh, or proven. Uh, and lawyers are very careful about whom they select for the jury, the people that are going to sit on the the panel who determines a person's guilt or innocence. They're very careful about who they pick because uh, oftentimes people have their minds made up about certain types of people before any type of evidence is even presented. Uh, And so guilt or innocence is supposed to be determined um, after the evidence has been given, after the due process has been finalized. But the religious leaders fall into the same trap as a a prejudiced member of a jury. Their minds are made up. It doesn't matter what the evidence is. And so, as we're going to see today, the religious leaders who conspired for Jesus' arrest are going to hold this trial, but the whole thing is just a joke. It's just a total sham because their minds are already made up. Jesus, even today, still so often does not get a fair trial by people. People who look at evidence for Christianity, including the resurrection, typically aren't persuaded just because of hardened heart. It's really that simple. And like jury candidates who are, ide- uh, at least ideally, eliminated from consideration, these people have preconceived notions and prejudices which prevent them from seeing the truth. The only way anyone will take that first step from God's value system, or from man's value system to God's value system, even though they're galaxies apart, the only way somebody will take that first step is by the prompting and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then a willingness to surrender their will to the Lord's will. And that's where it gets incredibly difficult for a person. And that's why it's often so difficult to talk to somebody because they might see the evidence, but oh, surrendering my will. Man, that's number, that's number one on my list of priorities. So, Anyway, having been betrayed by Judas Iscariot, having been abandoned by his disciples, every single one of them, and then arrested, Jesus has been led by the temple guards and the Roman authorities to the high priest of the temple in Jerusalem. And as we look at what happens here, I want us to be mindful of the fact that we're now closing in on what can only be considered the most important events in all all of history, in the entire universe. And if you, I mean, we think of the universe being this huge place, and considering that nothing has ever happened in any place or any time that's more important on the event, than the events that we're closing in on here, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. I think you would better believe that it's worth studying and paying very close attention uh, to what we're studying here. Uh, John tells us that Jesus was first brought before Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was serving as the high priest in the temple that year. But Mark is gonna skip Jesus' appearance before Annas, and he's gonna bring us straight to the trial before Caiaphas. So we pick it up in Mark chapter 14, We'll start with verses 53 and 54. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now Mark is intentionally started off this passage, this this section of the story, he's intentionally started off by making sure that we're aware that there are actually two trials that are going on simultaneously here, one inside and one outside. Peter is also going to be on trial here, as we're going to see. He'd followed at a distance, as had John, by the way, according to John's uh, testimony. And we learn in John's testimony that he somehow personally knew uh, the high priest, and so he was able to come inside and witness the trial. But Peter uh, didn't. Have that inside information. He didn't, he, in Vegas they call it juice. You know, you know somebody so they let you in. Peter didn't have any juice. And so he was forced to stay outside in the cold where he would be made, uh, or where he would be just as much on trial as Jesus was, even if it wasn't in the same environment or by the same people. How did Peter end up here? That's a good question. Uh, You know, I think, you know, after Jesus was arrested and Peter and all of the other disciples had abandoned Jesus, I think Peter had gathered up enough courage to follow Jesus, but from a distance. From a distance. Um, You know, he's, he's close enough to get an idea of what's going on, but he's still far enough away that nobody could tell that he's following Jesus. And I know. That the same can be said of me at various times in my life. The same can be probably said of all of us. That we've followed Jesus, but from a distance. Where we're close enough to say we're following him, but we're far enough away that nobody can even tell. Mm. And what's Peter doing? I mean, he can't see what's going on from outside. Uh, he probably can't hear everything that's going on inside. Uh, no, he's just warming himself up at the enemy's fire. He's seeking physical warmth, physical comfort at the enemy's fire over truth and loyalty to Jesus. And again, every single one of us has stood right there in Peter's shoes. He's seeking physical comfort of his flesh. And never forget this, never forget this principle. The enemy will seek to meet a person's physical needs because so often, when our flesh is satisfied, when our physical needs are feeling fulfilled, we'll completely forget about our spiritual needs. We'll completely neglect our spiritual needs because it feels like we've got everything that we could possibly need. And that's exactly what's going on with Peter here. He's got spiritual needs that he's not even thinking about because his physical needs are being satisfied as he seeks warmth at the enemy's fire. And so Mark is setting us up here for yet another contrast, which he's done throughout the Gospel of of Mark. And actually, all the Gospel authors do that to an extent, and it's always so interesting to see the contrasts that they make. But we're going to see this contrast much more clearly as we continue. So let's continue from verses 55 to 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Now, in our day and age, if we're we're not really familiar with uh, due process in their culture, we know due process in our culture, but if we're not real familiar with due process in their culture, uh, first century, you know, we might not completely realize what a joke, what a complete sham uh, this so-called trial really is because there are some very important uh, laws and procedures. There are some aspects of due process um, that have been set in place to prevent trials, uh, from, from, from being fraudulent, from being a sham, uh, in which the defendant was presumed guilty until proven innocent. But the religious leaders, the, the Sanhedrin, that's, that's who the, he's in front of here, they've bypassed all these laws and procedures for this so-called trial. Uh, the three groups groups which comprise the whole council, which was also known as the Sanhedrin, um, would have been the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And this group consisted of a total of 71 members, uh, and they were supposed to convene in the assembly hall of the temple. That was where all, that was according to due process, that's where the, any trial was supposed to be held. That's where, you know, people could know that it was going on, they could come and watch and listen. But no, this is happening, uh, you know, it's supposed to happen in what's called the, the chamber of hewn stone. But this gathering is held in the secrecy of the home of Caiaphas. Uh, there was no advance notice, and there was supposed to be advance notice given in a trial so that witnesses from either side, who, who maybe would have known you know, uh, part of the story that otherwise wouldn't be told, so they'd have the opportunity to come in and give their testimony. But there's no advance notice given here, so nobody can come to Jesus' defense. So that's another due process uh, procedure that they've, uh, they've totally abandoned, they've totally skipped. It's being held at night, whereas Jewish law dictates that all trials must be held in the daylight. And further, it's on, uh, it's on the day of a feast holiday, the Passover, which was forbidden. Finally, uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, Sanhedrin was forbidden from issuing a verdict on the same day that the trial was held. They were supposed to have at least 24 hours to think about it. And as we're going to see, that's not going to be the case here. That, the, the verdict is going to be reached within just a short span of time here. The fact is that the trial at best is just a technicality and that's what makes it a complete joke. That's what makes it a sham. The verdict has actually already been reached. It kind of reminds me of those hikers who uh who accidentally set foot in the mountains of Iran a few years ago if you remember that and they they were put on trial and everybody was was scared because they're thinking well we know how the Iranian courts work, what the government uh, what the government wants, the government gets and so even though there wasn't a shred of evidence even though they they questioned and questioned and and starved and prevented them from sleeping and they they didn't crack they they didn't say oh yeah okay finally you know we're a spy We, we were spies we admit it there was no evidence that they were guilty nevertheless they were sentenced to prison in iran even though no evidence uh it's not also it's also not that different from people who deny the resurrection, or maybe they, they just ignore or, or deny the existence of Jesus altogether. And they say he was a, a fictional his, uh, you know, figure in history. You know, man, the verdict is often reached. The conclusion is reached before long before any evidence is examined either way. So even though this whole thing is a sham, even though this whole thing is contrived, it starts off going really bad for the Sanhedrin. It starts off um, very poorly for them because they've got these witnesses who are coming forward who can't even get their own stories straight. They're giving conflicting testimony. And so apparently, there must have been some members of the Sanhedrin who were taking this seriously or trying to take it seriously. They had to know that all these laws were being broken. The due process wasn't being served here, but they're cross-examining, and they're dismissing witnesses who aren't consistent with their testimony. So some of them, some of them, not all of them obviously, but some of them are trying to take this seriously, and this was the best that the Sanhedrin, this was the best that these religious leaders who hated Jesus so much, this was the best that they could come up with. These guys who couldn't even get their story straight. And so finally, a pair of witnesses, Matthew tells us that it was two witnesses, uh, they stepped forward and apparently they did hear Jesus uh, say something that was kind of fishy, but they only get it about half right. Uh, but where there's a little bit of truth it's really hard to see that the whole thing is actually false and so they they, they are there's an element of truth here they say that they heard jesus say that he would destroy this temple made with hands and replace it with a temple made without hands now did jesus ever say that no jesus never said that but he said something close he said something somewhat similar. What he said was, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's from John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus didn't say that he was going to destroy the temple in Jerusalem. That wasn't what he was referring to. He was referring to his own body. He was referring to the destructive <laughs> intentions that the religious leaders had toward him, that he was very in tune with. He knew exactly what was going on in their hearts. And he's saying, if you kill me, if you destroy this temple, this body, I will raise it up after three days. And of course, he's referring to the resurrection. It's a prophecy of his death and resurrection, but he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He's not threatening to destroy the temple and then replace it with one not made with hands. Um, And so the testimony here is, as they'd say, close but no cigar, but close was apparently good enough for the high priest, who at this point, after they've had some, some testimony that wasn't inconsistent with anybody else's, at this point, he tries to bring the, the trial to an abrupt end by doing something very illegal, trying to force the accused party, the, the defendant, that's what Jesus says, trying to force him to say something that would incriminate himself. So we continue in Mark chapter 14, verses 60 to the first part of 61. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. And Jesus is so wise. He, he, he knows the, the, the verdict has already been reached. He knows that his silence is sufficient here. He doesn't need to say anything to defend himself. The testimony of the witnesses is sufficient proof that the charges against him are completely bogus. And listen to these guys. These guys are all contradicting themselves. He doesn't need to say anything because it's obvious that this whole thing is a joke. There's nothing that he can gain by saying anything. And here's a principle to live by, by the way. You never have to attempt to explain words that you never speak. You never have to attempt to explain words that you never speak. And that's the value of being slow to speak. And that's not to say that we should never speak. That's just to say that there is a time to speak. And uh, we all probably know somebody who thinks that time is all the time, right? It, every time is, is time to speak. But yeah, that's, that's, not, um, that's not wise. And that's not, uh, that's not what Jesus does. Solomon said this. He says in Proverbs chapter 12, Verses 18 and 19, he says, There is one who speaks rashly, or quickly, impulsively, uh, like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. And that's exactly what is going on here. That's exactly, this is a, a perfect picture of those two verses from the book of Proverbs. One liar after another stepping forward, but quickly being dismissed because they were lying. Their testimony was inconsistent. And so Jesus didn't need to say anything because the testimony of these frauds demonstrated his innocence more clearly than anything he could have said in his own defense. And the fact that the Sanhedrin allows this process to continue is an illustration of how easy it is for people to rationalize sin. It's completely obvious that Jesus should be released. But at what cost? Loss of power? Loss of influence? Loss of respect? It's all about self-preservation here. And by the way, Peter's going to do the same thing. He's going to resort to self-preservation. And so, Once you start doing that, once you start thinking in that cycle, it's just a short jump from there toward rationalizing sin. Isaiah had prophesied this about the Messiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb being led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And so the high priest here, Caiaphas, is obviously frustrated by Jesus' silence. And so what he resorts to, basically, is taunting Jesus. Why won't you talk? You know, you got something to hide here? You know, that's, that's what he's trying to imply, even though anybody who is unbiased watching this knows that Jesus doesn't need to speak anything. I think Caiaphas probably realizes that Jesus, so far, is innocent. He's innocent. He hasn't really done anything uh, worthy of any serious punishment. So, when Jesus remains silent, Caiaphas tries this approach, tries taunting him. He tries something very straightforward, but also illegal, and that is putting Jesus under oath to God, under an oath to God to testify against himself. So, we continue. The second part of verse 61 to 65. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, "'Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One?' And Jesus said, "'I am,' and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, "'What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you?' And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him." and to blindfold him, and to beat him with their fists, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Now, given this, if you, if you don't read the, the testimony of the other uh, gospel writers, it might be difficult for us to understand why Jesus all of a sudden speaks up out of nowhere here when his silence was, was really serving him very well. Now remember that it's most likely that Mark was writing to a Roman audience who would have been completely unfamiliar with Jewish due process. They would have been unfamiliar with uh, Jewish laws and oaths and things like that. And maybe that explains why Mark has omitted something that Matthew, who wrote to Jews, wrote to a Jewish audience, something that Matthew uh, was careful to include. And that is the fact that Caiaphas prefaced his question by saying this. I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. That's from Matthew chapter 26, verse 53. And so it's in response to this oath that Jesus breaks his silence and finally speaks, and he responds simply, I am. I am. I am. Now we all know the significance of those words, right? I am. Of course, maybe the most well-known way that God revealed himself in the entire Old Testament was when he revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush, and he says, go tell your people. And Moses says to him, which God should I say sent me? And he says, and God responds to him and says, say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. So this is clearly Jesus saying, not only I am exactly what you say, but I am God, I am God. Now, there are critics and scholars and skeptics out there who will tell you that Jesus never directly claimed to be God incarnate, that he never explicitly spelled it out. What's this? What, what, what? Are you kidding? You have to be completely hard-hearted and blind to overlook this passage. He's saying, are you the Son of God? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who was promised throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures? And Jesus says, I am, which is a kind of a double meaning. There's a double meaning, a double entendre, meaning yes, I am, but I am God. Wow. So Jesus is going to give a point blank question. He gives a point blank answer to a point blank question. And the second part of Jesus' response, after he says, I am, the second part is directly uh, aimed at Caiaphas. Jesus says, you will see me sitting at the right hand of power when I come with the clouds of heaven. And we might think, man, what does that have to do with him uh, admitting that he is the person that he is accused of being here? What's this supposed to mean? Well, it's, it's actually a prophecy. Jesus is prophesying here of the destiny that Caiaphas has chosen. Scripture clearly reveals that when people die, their souls enter immediately into eternity. And in eternity, there is no such thing as time. And one of the things that will happen in time is that Jesus will return on the clouds. That's the Shekinah glory that we find in the Old Testament. He's going to return on these clouds someday. And maybe, just maybe, that's why oftentimes when a believer dies, they catch a glimpse of something that causes them to experience incredible joy. I know this was the case with my grandfather. He was in a coma. He got up right before he died. He knelt at his bedside and prayed, and he died with a smile on his face. And that's not uncommon. That happens a lot with believers. It's that step across the threshold of eternity that they're taking. And I think that it's possible, if not likely, that what they're seeing is Jesus coming for the saints someday. Because they're stepping outside of time in that moment. And so they're able to see what's coming. And Jesus, by the way, same thing is going to happen with unbelievers. Right? They're going to enter into eternity too. And maybe in that last second, they catch a glimpse of what's coming also. Something that would cause them incredible fear in their last living moment. And Jesus is saying, this is what you are going to see. You're going to see this judgment time. You're going to see when I come to judge. And that's the event that Jesus is telling Caiaphas Uh, he's going to witness as he enters into the threshold of eternity. So what Jesus was basically saying is this, Caiaphas, you might be the one judging me now, but I'm going to judge you in time. I will have final judgment on you. And Caiaphas responds by tearing his garments, which is supposed to be an act which signifies outrage over a blasphemous statement, but this is kind of ridiculous because this is the statement that he set Jesus up for. You know, it was kind of like he pitched him a slow ball and Jesus hit it out of the park and... Like, you wouldn't expect that? And so he pretends like he's outraged. Um, And so what what does the rest of the Sanhedrin do? Okay. The high priest is outraged. Guilty. He's guilty. And so thus the trial ends with the Sanhedrin condemning Jesus to be deserving of death. And Jesus is escorted away, but not before being spit at, not before being blindfolded, and punched while he's blindfolded, and they're saying, prophesy. In other words, you can't see who's hitting you, but if you're really who you say you are, why don't you prophesy? Why don't you tell us who it is that's hitting you? Man, it was as though the enemy of God himself was lashing out at Jesus through these men all of a sudden. It was like there was a spirit of restraint that was removed. All of a sudden, all of this hatred comes just pouring out all at once. Years later, Peter would write this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And this is actually a perfect example, a perfect illustration, a perfect model for us to follow when we are falsely accused of something. Leave it in God's hands. And how did Peter know this was how Jesus responded? Well, Peter's outside. He probably doesn't hear everything that's going on, but he hears enough. He knows what's going on. He knows that Jesus isn't really sticking up for himself. He's not doing what he could have done. Jesus had been on trial inside. But now Mark's going to switch gears. Now Mark's going to take us outside where we're going to see Peter go on trial. And Mark's going to tell us about that in verses uh, 66 to 72. As Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were also with Jesus the Nazarene. But he denied it saying, I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. And he went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, this is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean too. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark to him, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter has done the exact opposite of everything that Jesus has done. When he was questioned, Jesus remained silent. Peter responded impulsively. He he responded without really giving it a whole lot of deep thought. When Jesus answered under oath, he spoke the truth. Peter lied. Both Jesus and Peter were asked about their identities. Jesus revealed his identity while Peter tried to conceal his identity. What has gone wrong here? What has caused Peter to fail this trial so incredibly poorly? Well, he's fallen back to his, own way, his old ways. He has embraced the world's value system of self-preservation. I'm number one, rather than embracing God's value system. This is a picture of how diametrically opposed, how, how opposite these value systems truly are. I mean, they are at opposite ends of the spectrum. Peter's put himself into a really, really dangerous situation here. He he very easily could have been killed. Somebody very easily could have recognized him as the one who cut off the soldier's ear. It could have happened really easily. This is a dangerous situation. These are the temple guards who arrested Jesus, and now they're standing around the fire with Peter. I imagine they still have their swords and clubs. It's a dangerous situation And I think Peter's already shown us he he doesn't know how to handle a sword. So what's he going to do against several of these people by himself? I think we can all probably agree that he was there because of his stubborn pride. His stubborn, sinful pride. His reliance. His utter dependence on the strength, on the capabilities of his own flesh. He wanted to prove that he did have that determination to stand by Jesus to the very end. But for the second time in only a couple hours here, Peter's going to see just how weak his flesh is as, you know, as any ounce of courage that he might have had before just poof, vanishes into thin air once again. Man, we, we, we saw that happen just a couple hours ago and here he is. Same thing. Even though he had this resolve, this determination This reliance on the flesh, temptation, sought Peter out when he least expected it. And yet, it was a situation that he had put himself into. And man, you know, we'd all be so good at controlling our tongues and saying the right thing. If only everything was scripted the way we would like it to be. You know, if if only everything, uh, you know, turned out the way we imagined it or expected it. I mean, how many times do we walk away from a, a, you know, a cheap insult or maybe a rude comment, and we come up with the perfect response, like 10, 15 minutes too late. Oh, if I only would have said that. Or how many times do we walk away and we realize, man, I shouldn't have said that. Ah, the tongue can do so much damage. There's a British shock radio host named Tim Shaw who learned just how much damage... Uh, impulsive words can cause. He's sort of the the British equivalent of Howard Stern. He likes to interview guests with provocative questions. He says provocative things. And on one show, he had this really attractive girl, apparently, in the studio um, and told her live on the air that he would be happy to leave his wife and kids to be with a girl like her. Now, that was an extremely stupid Unwise thing to say, but, you know, a lot of things that we say when we're speaking impulsively are seriously lacking in wisdom. Well, Tim Shaw's wife happened to be listening that night, and so she proceeded to make an eBay auction for his Lotus Esprit Turbo. Uh, which is a pretty expensive sports car. And the auction page uh, was almost completely blank except for a picture of the car and the following words. She wrote this, I need to get rid of this car immediately, ideally in the next two to three hours before my cheating husband gets home to find it gone and all his belongings in the street. I am the registered owner and I have the registration. Please only buy if you can pick up tonight. And so she set a buy it now price on eBay, a buy it now price. is, you know, It's not really up for auction. Here's a a, a solid price that you can just buy it for before the auction even starts. So the buy it now price on the auction was 50 pence, which is about the equivalent of what, Jamie, 90 cents? Yeah, Yeah, about 90 cents. The auction lasted less than five minutes before someone took her up on this offer. He, He used the buy it now price, buying it for the equivalent of 90 cents for this $50,000, $60,000 sports car. And he comes and he picks it up and he drives off with the registration. In a later interview with reporters, Mrs. Shaw said that she was, quote, sick of Tim disrespecting the family for the sake of his act. And when asked about the price of the car, she said, I didn't care about the money, I just wanted to get him back. The Bible speaks volumes about the type of damage that can be done with impulsive, careless words. And before this story is done, Peter is going to be feeling the sting, the weight of those words. And it was more than he could bear. This isn't just an image of what it looks like to deny Christ. This is what happens when our failures, our sinfulness, our guilt get the best of us. Instead of coming clean and confessing, what Peter does is he, because he's impulsive, he's in self-preservation mode, he's in worldly value mode, he, go, he resorts to just digging a deeper hole. Just digging a deeper hole. Not getting anywhere. And so he starts cursing and swearing as a means of trying to, to conceal his identity. Digging a deeper hole. Man. You know, what I've learned over the years is that Jesus was so, so right when he said that the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. It's from Matthew twelve thirty four. When a person curses, like Peter's doing here, not only does it show that they can't control themselves, but it reveals that there are much deeper issues going on in the heart. Trust me, I, you guys all know I've been there. There are much deeper issues going on in the heart. And that's just another reason why we should be slow to speak, thinking about what we want to say and thinking about the best way to articulate it before verbal vomit just comes out, which is basically what it is. It's messy. It's dirty. It's filth. It's undigested, unthought through, unarticulated. Now, there's a lot of irony here in the way that Mark has put these two events side by side. Here the members of the Sanhedrin condemned Jesus, and guess what? Peter didn't do any better. What would these two things, the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter, what more could these things have to do with each other? I think what Mark is doing is he's showing that Peter's heart and the hearts of the members of the Sanhedrin were in the same place, relying on the same thing, the flesh. And Mark is simply showing us What the fruit of the flesh looks like. Mark wants us to see that the love that we have for Jesus is no better than the hatred of the world. Let me say that again. Mark wants us to see that the love that we have for him is no better than the hatred of the world. When our love for Jesus and our loyalty to Jesus is based on the strength of the flesh, it's no better. The difference between Peter and the members of the Sanhedrin is that Peter was finally willing to be humbled. He was broken. He was seriously, seriously broken. He loved Jesus, but he was prideful, and he wanted to prove something, and that is why he broke down and wept. He finally realized this is something that no matter how determined I am, I can't do. I can't do. Now, the Greek term for broke down here is very strong. Uh, It's indicating that not only was he in agony, he was in the type of agony where you throw yourself on the ground and you are in emotional pain. That's where Peter is. He's in utter agony to realize the division of wills that he had with Jesus. Just like Jesus had experienced agony when he, uh, when, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and his will differed from the Father's will, this passage ends with Peter in his own proverbial Garden of Gethsemane where he's finally realizing that his will is not only different from God's will, but that his will to stand by and for Jesus isn't enough if it's just based on Peter. There are two things that we need to understand From this passage. The first is that whether we realize it or not, the deepest desire that any of us have is not physical comfort. The deepest desire that any of us have is to be molded into Christ's likeness. Whether we realize it or not, whether the world realizes it or not, because anything else is temporary, it's gonna be gone. It won't give us the sense of satisfaction, the peace that passes understanding. Nothing else brings it like knowing Jesus and being molded into his likeness. The flesh will always resist that, resist this process of being molded into Christ's likeness. The flesh will always work against it because the flesh and the spirit are at odds with one another. They're pulling different directions. So whether we realize it or not, our deepest desire is to be like Christ. Number 2, the second thing we we can gather from this is that Peter wasn't ready to be used by God at this point. He wasn't ready to be used by God until he realized how weak his flesh really was. He needed to have a tough lesson in the weakness of the flesh, and we aren't all that different from Peter. We all fail. We all sin. We all seek warmth at the enemy's fire from time to time. But know this. Jesus can use people in mighty ways when they recognize their sin, when they recognize their failures, and they turn to him in response for forgiveness and obedience. And so my hope is that the Lord would use this passage to show each of us the total and complete weakness of the flesh. And may it illuminate times in all of our lives individually in which we've stood both in Peter's shoes and in the shoes of the Sanhedrin. And all that we've given is the fruit of the flesh because we've been relying on the flesh. And may our personal reflection on those times and this passage Teach us to seek victory over the flesh by pursuing the leading of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God who is so, so rich in mercy. And we confess to you right now in the silence of our heart the times that we have failed you and maybe we've been too stubborn to even admit that we failed you. But Lord, you love us nevertheless. You've called us to be yours nevertheless. And so Lord, I just pray that you would teach us through your Holy Spirit to rely not on our flesh, but you. That we would rely on you and you alone. May we see the complete and utter weakness of doing otherwise. We just thank you for who you are, for loving us the way you do, in spite of ourselves. Teach us not to be proud. Teach us to be humble in order that we can be molded into Christ's lives. In Jesus' name. Amen. It was so much- thousands of people around the world you can go to our website biblestudypodcasts.org and you can make a donation on the right hand side by clicking on the support box again we do rely on your support and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times god bless you thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer To Jesus. Take me deeper.